You know, sometime in your life, in everybody's life, you are either going to be a bearer or a recipient of important news. You're either going to bring important news or you're going to receive important news. Sometime in your life, for sure. It could be a kid who studied for a test and, and he comes home bearing good news with, a, with an A and he's excited. And though in the big scope of things as a parent, you know, and all the challenges we live, uh, that may not be as big a deal to us, but it's a huge deal to them. That was very important for them at that time. As you get older and maybe you're applying to college and you get a college acceptance letter and you have good news, you bring good news and then are you here? The good news, they've been accepted. Or they come that one day and they say, mom, dad, I'm going to pop the question. Or the girl comes home and says, guess what? And you know, that left hand is out. Guess what? They're bringing and bearing the important news to them at their life. All of us at some time will receive troubling news. Several years ago, I was in a quiet family room of a hospital after a car accident where a three-year-old girl was rushed into surgery and the doctors came in and they said, we did all we could. hearing that and watching parents face that news. All of us will be bearers or recipients of important news. As Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he, as he's winding down his letter, shares life's most important news. So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's read together as we think about what Paul's important, important news really is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we pick up together in verse number 1. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important, uh uh-oh, most important. Here Paul's going to share something. What's most important? What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is the name for Peter. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. With that, let's pray together. God, I ask that you would uh, speak to us today, and that you would challenge us as we think about life's most important news, how we can move from death to life. In Jesus' name, amen. As Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, he's writing to a church that is 
planted in the middle of a very idolatrous and immoral city. In 2019, I was able to walk through some of the ancient ruins in Corinth, and it was known as a very pagan, secular, uh, emperor-worshipping, idolatrous, and very immoral, promiscuous society. But as Paul went in and began to share the message of Jesus, there were some who came to receive Jesus in their life. And now Paul is writing them and sharing what he considers to be the most important news. That most important news. You know, when something's really important, it not only has earthly relevance, but eternal consequence. And Paul's message has earthly relevance and eternal consequence as he shares the message of what Jesus did for us. That Jesus, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul says and really highlights this as his most important news that he could share with anyone. This was the message that Paul, as he swept in through different cities throughout uh, the ancient Roman world, would share. And this is the one thing that he wants to make sure that everyone in that church clearly understands. It is most important because it has earthly relevance and eternal consequence. And so Paul really drives it home and challenges those believers to take their belief and their stand on the message of what Jesus has done for us. And so as we think about that, I want us to see three truths that Paul drives home from this passage and then really kind of look back in our own life to make sure that these are the truths that we are standing on. First off, he really points out that Christ died for our sins. That's what he very clearly lays out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 3. I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. The the cross was not a divine accident. It was not a divine afterthought. But God moved through the working of the cross to bring forgiveness and salvation for each of us. Now, we notice that those words, Christ died for our sin, those five words, there's some truths that I think that we have to understand. First off, Christ died for our sin, our sin. That's the problem of sin that we all have. The problem is, is that we have all at some time in our life thought something or said something or done something that has displeased God. And so this problem that we all in our human nature have is the problem of our own sin. We've all thought, we've all said, we've all done. And every time that that we would look and try to register our life and look at our life and think, man, I did something, now I deserve an amount of punishment. I thought something wrong, I did something wrong, I said something wrong. And because of that, there's a weight of punishment that I deserve before before God. I, I... you know, sometimes people think that they're pretty good. I mean, you know, most people think, oh, yeah, overall, I'm, I'm a pretty decent man or woman, and, and I'm not that bad. 
when, when you look at it in, in terms of if you were going to make an omelet with 12 eggs in it for a very special, important guest in, in your family and you begin to crack eggs and you crack one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten eggs, and then you crack egg 11 and it's rotten and it falls into the rest of the eggs. And then you crack egg 12 and it falls in and it's rotten as well. Now, if you know anything about trying to get all of those eggs, you realize amid 12 eggs, you're not going to be able to get all that rotten out. I mean, you, you can try to spoon it. You can, it's just all slimy and mixed in there. And the truth is, is though we may think that we have some really good parts of our life and we're kind to people and we're generous, all of us have some bad egg in us. And it's mixed into our life and through our life, and we can't take it out ourselves. And that's why we find the problem is our sin, but then the payment, because we look at those words, Christ died for our sins, we find the payment of our sin was paid for by Jesus. Christ died for our sin. Christ died. The reason Jesus went to the cross for all of us is because when he went to the cross, he was taking that punishment that we kept working up and working up and working up. And ultimately, we deserve punishment for this and for that and for this and for that and for this and for that. And Jesus, when he died, he took God's perfect justice into place as he bore the punishment for our sin. Christ died for our sin. Thursday this week will be April 21st. On April 21 of 2016, six years ago, I was wheeled into a hospital room at St. Louis University. IVs were put in my arm. The third time they got the IV in my arm, I should say. Uh, nothing like getting stuck twice and you're already nervous, all right? So the third IV works. They take me off, put me, you know, put me to sleep. And because I have a cancerous tumor on my right kidney, they have to take the whole kidney out. They use this sophisticated robot called a da Vinci robot. And if you uh, Google what a da Vinci robot looks like, a surgeon's kind of over to the side and he runs this wild video game looking thing with five arms on it. And uh, as he's working on me on this da Vinci robot while I'm asleep, they remove my kidney. You know, as sophisticated as our society may get, as medically adept as we think we can be, there is no way for a man or a woman to remove someone else's sin. Oh yeah, we can do surgery on cancer, but we can't take care of sin. There's only one who can take care of that in our life, and his name is Jesus. And it tells us that Christ died for our sin, so that when Jesus died on the cross, he was the one who took the full payment and punishment for all the things that we had ever done wrong. Christ died for our sin. We have a problem of sin. Christ died for our sin. But then we think about this. This is not, like I said, a divine afterthought. We really see the prophecy of this because it says Christ died for our sin according to the scripture. So that we look at the prophecy of God's word and some 800 years before Jesus would step into humanity, we find that God had already predicted what Jesus was going to have to do. In Isaiah 53, and I, you could read a lot, but I just want to read one verse in there, and it's verse number seven, and it, or verse number six, and it says, we all went astray like sheep, and we've turned to our own way, and the Lord 
punished, has punished him for the iniquity or the sins of us all. The Old Testament picture, Isaiah, would look forward and say, this is what's going to happen. There is going to come one who is going to take the sins of us all. In the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices for their sins. But in the New Testament, we find that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and he took the penalty and the punishment for our sins. So when we look at God's word, this was not an accident. Actually, in Revelation 13, 8, it reminds us that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, even before the world was created, God knew what was going to have to happen and that Jesus was going to give his life for you. You know, as we think about your value and and where you are today and whether God really loves you, it really can be measured by what someone has paid so that you could be forgiven. And God sent Jesus to live a perfect life and die on the cross to take the punishment for your sin. See, sin has to be punished, and it really only can be punished in one of two ways. Either Jesus takes it when we trust in what he's done on the cross, or we take it and we're disqualified from heaven in the presence of the Lord forever. And ultimately, cast away from him forever in hell. That's the truth of what the scripture says. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. But then we not only find that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, but then Christ was buried to confirm his death. It says Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, and that he was buried. Christ was buried. That burying him confirmed that he was truly dead. Now, we can look and say the Romans were trained assassins. They knew how to put someone on a cross. Matter of fact, they did not create uh, the uh, capital punishment of the cross, but they perfected it. And what the cross would do, would it, it would delay death until maximum torture was ultimately afflicted on the person who was on the cross. Now, when Jesus was on the cross, he faced not only the physical part of the wrath of the Romans, but spiritually, he took the payment for our sin. So that when Jesus cried out in John 19, 30, it is finished, it meant that he paid our debt in full. And then he declared the words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then it says he died. You remember the Romans came and they put a spear into his side. He was taken down from the cross and he was put in a borrowed tomb. He was dead. Now, there are a few people out there who say, oh, Jesus couldn't have really died and come back. Instead, he just kind of was a little bit sick and then came back. But the truth of the matter is, you have to understand, Jesus had just spent the Passover night with his disciples. Through the night, he had been arrested and put on trial six times, three times in a political court, three times in a religious court. Then he had been uh, mocked and spitting on and beaten, but... Ultimately, Pilate releases him to be flogged 40 times. Now, 
39, with 39 lashes. 40 times was considered the death penalty in that day. Jesus received 39 lashes with these long uh, leather attachments with bone and glass and rock attached to it that would grab a hold of his flesh and rip it out as they would pull back on, uh, on, on, their, uh, on their whip. So what we find is they scourged him 39 times Then he's put on a cross from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. And I think it's very fair to say that when the Romans looked at him, they knew he was dead. Now, one of our kids' favorite movies growing up was uh, that great movie called The Princess Bride. Now, if you have seen the movie The Princess Bride, this is a spoiler alert in case you haven't seen that movie in the 35 years that it has been out. Uh, either on VCR from Blockbuster in the late 80s, or some of you don't even know what Blockbuster is. But uh, in case you missed the movie somewhere along the way, there's Princess Buttercup, and she has her, her loving affection toward Wesley. But Princess Buttercup is being forced to marry Prince Humperdinck. And so Prince Humperdinck is going to take Wesley off the scene, and so he delivers him over to receive maximum torture. And as he receives maximum torture, they take it further than he's ever been than it's ever been taken before, and they think that he is dead. And his friends, Inigo Montoya and Fezzik, come and they get his body and they carry him to Miracle Max, which is Billy Crystal, who is just absolutely hilarious in that movie. If you haven't seen it, I'm ruining it for you. I understand, but you should see it. And Miracle Max takes a look at Wesley and says, well, he's just mostly dead. Just mostly dead. So he's still a little bit alive. And then he makes some kind of concoction about the size of a peach that he has to swallow. And they go storm the castle and Wesley and Princess Buttercup ride off into the sunset. The picture is, is when Jesus was dead, he really was dead and he was buried. The wages of sin is death. And though he had never committed any sin, he took the punishment that we deserved. Jesus was buried to confirm his death. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. And he was buried. And then it goes on to say this, that Christ rose again the third day according to to the scriptures, that Christ was raised to offer salvation. Christ was raised so that today we're not here to commemorate someone who died on a cross, a dead martyr. Instead, we are here to celebrate a living savior, that he died on the cross to take the punishment for our sin. And then he rose from the, from the grave. And now Jesus has come to offer salvation. This is the word of earthly relevance and eternal consequence that we have got to get a hold of. All of us have sinned. We know that. We know we've thought things, said things, done things. We all know that sometime in our life, we messed up. And that's why Jesus died. But God says in his word that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. So we see the prophecy now of his resurrection. And we look back in Isaiah 53 again, written some seven to 800 years before Jesus would come. And what do we find out? Well, it says in Isaiah 53, 8, he was 
He was cut off from the land of the living. He's going to die. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but was with a rich man at his death. In other words, he died with wicked, with, sold, uh, with thieves on both sides, but then was laid into the tomb of a rich man. And then it goes on to say in verse number 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him. And then it says, when you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. 800 years before Jesus came. And there are manuscripts of the Old Testament scriptures that are hundreds of years old that would even predate the the coming of Jesus himself. And it would say that God would prolong his days, pointing to that picture of Jesus and say, he is going to rise from the dead, that he is going to die and he's going to be dead with the wicked, buried with the rich, but he will prolong his days. Life is going to come back into his lungs. He will breathe again. He will live again. It goes on to say, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He will see light and be satisfied. My righteous servant will justify many and will carry their iniquities. Justify. He offers salvation. So we see the prophecy. But not only do we see the prophecy of his resurrection in the Old Testament scripture, let's think about the words of Jesus himself. In John chapter 2 and verse number 19, Jesus, as he's speaking and just cleansed the temple in John chapter 2, he said, you destroy this temple, my body, and I will bring it back in three days. John chapter 12, around verse number 40. And he says, as, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, the belly of the huge fish for three days and nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Or Matthew chapter 27, uh, Matthew chapter 17, around verses 22 to 25, where Jesus says... Listen, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to the chief priests and elders, and they're going to kill him. But in three days, I will rise. Jesus had told his disciples the same exact thing. He will rise. So we see the prophecy of his resurrection, but we also see the testimony of his resurrection. It says that he was seen by Peter and of the 11 disciples, that he was seen by over 500, and he was seen by James and the apostles, and he was seen by over, uh, and he was seen by Paul himself. Over 500 plus people had seen Jesus after he had risen from the dead. 500 people. Now, I, I wonder if you had a car accident out here on Moogie Road and there were 500 people watching it, do you think that of the 500 people that watched it, they would have an accurate picture of what really happened? 500 people lining up in testimony to say, I saw Jesus alive, I saw Jesus alive, I saw Jesus alive, I saw Jesus alive. And Paul says, you can go to many of them some 20 to 30 years later and ask them today. They'll still tell you, I saw Jesus alive. So what's the big deal? Jesus died, Jesus rose, people saw him. Well, the big deal is, that it is through his salvation that there is this offer. The prophecy of his resurrection and the testimony of his appearances, but there's the offer of salvation that comes with this. The offer of salvation. That means that 
all of us have sinned. This sin is stuck to our life. It is mixed and mingled in everything that we do. No man can take it out. We can't take it out. We can't do enough good to take it out. We can't erase it out. We can't give our way, go to church enough, do enough good things. So what has to happen? The picture is is the only thing that can happen if we want to go to heaven is for Jesus to take that sin away. And John 1, John the Baptist would say about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that when Jesus went to the cross, the Bible says that God laid our iniquity on him and we must trust him alone. You remember those words, most important? Paul says this is most important. Christ died. Christ rose. He offers salvation. We go back to verse number 1 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and it says this, Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel. That's the good news. This is the message that Jesus died and rose again. I preached to you when you received on which you have taken your stand. Paul says, look, I preach the gospel. It's the gospel that you have received. And Paul then says, and this is the gospel on which you must take your stand. Can I ask you today? Have you taken that stand to say, I'm going to trust Jesus alone as the only way to receive forgiveness and eternal life? If you're trusting a church, this church, that church, any church, if you're trusting religious things that you've done in the past, if you're trusting going to church, if you're trusting giving to the church, if you're trusting helping little old ladies across the street, if you're trusting giving everything that you have away and being generous with the poor, listen, it will never work. The only place that you can take your stand and know that you're going to go to heaven is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sin, that Jesus rose, and that we can receive the free gift of salvation. So let me ask you, have you taken your stand? If you don't know Jesus today, the stand that you have to take, it's not about joining this church. It's not doing anything to please me. It's not about trying to, trying to please anybody else. It's about coming face to face with this. I've got some crud in my life that I can't get rid of. Some things I've done in the past that, that no preacher, uh, no good person, a da Vinci robot, no one can take away. I just got to go to Jesus personally and have them take that from me. And for those of you who say that you know Jesus, I want to challenge you again. Because this passage, Paul reminds us that we're to take our stand. And if we really believe that this is what is most important, and we celebrate this day as what is most important, then we may in our own heart and life need to recommit our life and say, look, fresh and new, I have decided to follow Jesus. I am taking my stand. I'm taking my stand. So today, you get to take your stand. Matter of fact, today, you will take a stand. You'll take a stand to say, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life or not. You'll take a stand that says, Jesus, I've decided just fresh and new on Easter Sunday, 2022, I'm going to follow you. 
Are you going to say, nope, I've taken my stand to just keep living the way I want to live? Paul says, it's time to take a stand. 